0: This morning during our time together we're going to be talking about something that we love and something that we pretend to have um, but we don't have. What is something that we love and we speak of it as if we have it and yet none of us ultimately have it? Well that something is certainty. We speak as if we know what we're doing this afternoon, we know what we're doing tomorrow with our 401k if we happen to have one, uh, on and on the list goes from big things to little things, big things like our relationships, our greatest love relationships, we expect them, we think they're going to last forever, sadly, tragically, sometimes they don't. And life is filled with such uncertainty, though we speak of it as if we know, as if we're confident, as if we're certain. And we're not. We're not because we're not sovereign. We don't have all wisdom. We don't have all power. We don't have an ultimate Purpose that is sure to happen. And so that's why we need to look outside of ourselves to fulfill this longing and love that we all have for certainty. We need to look outside of ourselves and we need to look to the one who is sovereign, the one who is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who does know all, the one who definitely has a purpose, the one who has all the power to make sure these things come to pass. And his name is Jesus. So if you have a Bible, you can find the 20th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And we are studying this book as a church. If you're just joining us, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, we are learning about sovereignty from Jesus so that we can fulfill that desire we have for certainty, not in ourselves, because it'll never happen, but in one who is certain, in one who is none other than Christ the Lord. This is what I call um, the school of sovereignty, or maybe we could say getting schooled in sovereignty. But that sounds negative. I don't mean it in a negative sense. But he's he's literally going with the disciples, helping them, schooling them in sovereignty. And so, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. But if you need it to be, if you need to be schooled in a negative way, um, you came to the right place. But helping us to understand helping us to understand uh, he and he alone is the one who should be the object of our worship, the object of our trust, ultimately, and the object of our affection. And so we're going to look at this great text about certainty and sovereignty, uh, and it's found in chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. If you're a note-taker, before we read the text, we'll read the whole thing. Uh, if you're a note-taker, I'm going to follow five certain statements showcasing his sovereignty. Say that fast five times. No, please don't. I'll think you're speaking in tongues, and that wouldn't be appropriate. I digress. So, five certain statements showcasing his sovereignty. Therefore, his trustworthiness. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the text. Beginning in verse 17, we'll read 17, 18, and 19. Look for these certain statements if you would. And now what I propose we do is that we look a little closer at each of these statements of certainty so that we might understand them better, so that we might trust Him as we ought to be trusting in Him. So the first statement of certainty showcasing His sovereignty is found in verse 18. Hopefully you noticed it there. See, we are going up to Jerusalem first glance, I don't know about you, but it seems to be not very significant, doesn't seem to say a whole lot about sovereignty, but in light of what he's going to go on to say, and in light of the broader breadth of Scripture, I'm going to say it's a statement of certainty reflecting his sovereignty. Why would I say that? Why would I say we are going up to Jerusalem as a statement of certainty? Well, because it is, but at first glance it doesn't look like it because they and Just about every other Jew around is going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's Passover. And what do you do if you're a Jew in the region and are able, during Passover, you too, with your family, go up to Jerusalem. So countless, from the human eye, countless, thousands upon thousands of men and women and boys and girls are going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so why would we say this is a statement of certainty? Well, because Jesus isn't only going to participate. He's not going to be an active observer. He is going as, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would have us to know, the Passover lamb. Think about that. He's going as the Passover lamb. John chapter 1 has John the Baptist seeing Jesus and saying, Behold, the, the lamb of God. And he says it a second time. And so when we look at this in, in light of the whole, we say this is a statement of certainty. This is a statement of sovereignty. We must go up to Jerusalem. We must go up to Jerusalem because Jesus, in effect, is meaning because I am the ultimate, long-awaited, for, expected, prophesied Passover lamb. It's exciting to think about. We, we know enough about the bigger picture to say, Ever since before the first Passover in the Old Testament, Jesus was going to be the Passover Lamb. He's the eternal Son. And there's been an eternal purpose that's existed before the foundation of the world. So so think with me, if you would, about the chronology. We can go back to the Old Testament and and learn about Israel and God graciously providing for them. Forgiveness, atonement, blood sacrifice, so they didn't get what they deserve because they deserve condemnation like everybody else. And so you're going to sprinkle the blood and you're going to put it on the door and you're going to have the Passover lamb, right, that is slain to provide so that there, there could be forgiveness, so there could be redemption, so there could be freedom. And then we're going to commemorate that, and we're going to have Passover, and we're going to celebrate the Passover, and and countless people will go up to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover, commemorating God's great act of, of, of freeing and redemption, and who knows by this point in time how many Passovers there have been, how many Passover lambs there have been, Passover after Passover after Passover after Passover. And then thinking back to the original Passover, lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb. But we know there's been a purpose, a sovereign purpose, that's existed before the foundation of the world pre-first Passover. That there would be the one who would be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. It's a statement of certainty. It's a statement of sovereignty. We different from all of these other Jewish families because of who's leading them must go up to Jerusalem we must it's quite amazing to consider what's going on here and what's happening here i love what the king james translate how the king james translation puts luke chapter 9 verse 51 because it's so memorable And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Here's what I wanted you to notice. Get this. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And lots of you have learned it that way, even if you didn't know it's from King James. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Even before this he did. We could say, His face has always been set toward Jerusalem in light of what we know. He was always going there. And here, the time is drawing close. We must go, and we must go now, because this is the time all of human history has been waiting for. Certainly it is. He knows this to be true. Now's the time. Luke's parallel account to Matthew chapter 20 helps uh, you to relax and know that I'm not reading too much into this. Okay. So Matthew 20 is our text. The parallel account is Luke 18:31. I just referenced Luke 9:51 in the King James, but the parallel account to our parallel text to our account is Luke 19 uh, Luke 18 verse 31. And it says this. Then he Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man, will be accomplished. Jerusalem, equal sign, fulfillment. And all the fulfillment that was talking about me, Jesus says. This is a sovereign appointment. This is by divine design. He is resolute and resolved and nothing can stop him from going there. One of the reasons we read biographies, those of us who read biographies, or we see movies, so many of them are, are written and we love them because, because someone, a man or a woman, shows great resolve, great resolution, commitment. This is, this is going to be what they do no matter what. Opposition, conflict, suffering, turmoil. Hard times and somehow they come out and they stuck to their guns, so to speak, to the very end and they're successful. Well, that's why I love biographies. No one has been resolved like this man has been resolved. It is going to happen absolutely, positively, no matter what happens. This is going to happen. It has to happen. This is the divine purpose. The Apostle Paul would want to use those kinds of words. Here it is, right before our very eyes. And we know why it's going to happen. We know because we know why his name is Jesus, according to chapter 1, verse 21. If you thought I would skip it this morning, you thought wrong. Because we're interpreting the whole book in light of that as we should. He's not just here to show us how to be more resolved. Oh, what a biography we have of Jesus. Well, we do have what a biography. And he does teach us how to be resolved. But the fact of the matter is, he's resolute and resolved for lots of, lots of reasons. But good news to us, he's resolved because he came to save his people from their sins. And that is good news to us. That is great news to us. He must go to Jerusalem because He will save His people from their sins. So great. Let's move on to a second statement of certainty showcasing His sovereignty. Found in verse 18 also. And the Son of Man will be, there's our statement of certainty, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. This will happen. Now we already know, we know enough to know that this isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. But with certainty, the sovereign one, we'll talk more about this in just a little bit, says this will happen. Before it happens, this will happen. This must happen. It's with certainty this is how it's going to go down. It is going to happen. But I would, I would like you just to read it wrongly for a moment, just to sense the awkwardness of it. And I'm a fan of doing this because we read it so many times we don't maybe catch the profound nature of it. Let's reread verse 18 in the context of the greater uh, passage. Let's start in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem with all of these countless Jews and, and their kids, and, and it's wonderful, and it's awesome and festive, and, and this is what you long for. This is a great holiday, and you get to see long-lost friends and relatives, and it's such a, uh, uh, such a great celebration. This is going to be wonderful. It's Passover, and we're, we're making our pilgrimage to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. And so this is wonderful. He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And if they weren't thinking clearly, but were kind of thinking clearly, they'd be thinking, Oh, yes! We, and we're with Him! We are going up to Jerusalem! And if we are going up to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, we're going up to Jerusalem with none other than the One who fulfills Psalm chapter 2. He's the great long-awaited son. He's the great long-awaited servant. He's the great one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the one. This is going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. It will be like no other Passover ever in human history. Awesome. That's how you'd be thinking if you didn't know how it goes. I'm I'm not suggesting they don't know. I'm not suggesting they do know. It's probably a mixed bag but for effect oh this is great this is wonderful this is awesome then if we keep reading and the son of man it's that's still positive because that's borrowed from borrowed from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 the one who would rule and reign forever there's only going to be one of those the son of man all caps on purpose if your translation capitalizes all of it that would be right because it's a title and the son of a, and the son of man will be, and we think crown king because he is, and he's proven himself to be again and again and again and again by what he's done, by what he's said, and he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And now we know that it's a tragedy. In a certain sense, because it is tragic. It qualifies as tragic. But we also know it's certainly going to happen on purpose for a specific reason and it's not because Jesus was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't because he was a victim of circumstance. It wasn't any such reason. The Son of Man will be delivered. This is by appointment and purpose because he's sovereign, because he's in charge, because Jesus does not believe in the God of the possible as one idiotic evangelical talked about not very many years ago and showed himself to not be an evangelical. Acts 2.23 says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan. Acts 4:27 and 28 for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy ser- servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand God's hand and per- and your purpose predestined to occur Acts 3:18 but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled So again, Jesus is not a good guesser. He's not at the wrong place at the wrong time. He's actually carrying out a resolved, resolute mission. This will happen. Certain. So, is what will happen to Jesus bad? Absolutely. The most horrific act ever committed by human beings. He's the spotless one. Is it according to a grand purpose and design from God? Absolutely. And Jesus says this must happen. It's going to happen. Fascinatingly enough, the word that's uh, used in our text, delivered in Matthew 20, verse 19, is the same Greek word at least as occurs in Matthew 26, verse 25. It's translated differently in the translation I'm looking at right now. uh, And it's translated betraying. Judas was Betraying Jesus in Matthew twenty six twenty five, he's delivering him. And since we're on the Judas, Judas topic, Judas is a good guy or a bad guy. It's kind of a duh, right? Um, I always think about people who don't know the Bible very well and they don't know anything and they're looking for names for their new kids. You know, they're in the hospital trying to think up names and oh, maybe never mind. I digress. <laughs> I'll bet it's happened before, right? Judas is the one who's going to deliver him over. Judas is the one who's going to betray him. But I want to remind you here today, Judas, the bad actor doing bad things, morally culpable, responsible for his actions, Jesus will later call him out for being responsible. But in John chapter 6, Jesus even says that he chose the 12 disciples, and I'm just paraphrasing right now, knowing full well that one of them was demonic. It is on purpose because Jesus doesn't know anything about contingency plans. Doesn't have to alter things because he's made a mistake. He is certain about absolutely everything that he does. He's certain about absolutely everything, period. So I would encourage you to worship Him. I would encourage you to trust in Him. Because some of the greatest things in all the world that I want to be most certain about, and in my life, in most lives, they have to do with relationships. They have to do with health. Maybe education, maybe wealth, but usually it's the other stuff. If you've lived long enough, you know that it's not always certain. And there's a lot of heartache and a lot of heartbreak. So look outside of yourself because you're not sovereign. And no one else is either other than this one. This is what will happen. And then this will happen. Let's, let's be looking to Him. I I This morning I could be it offering you advice about how to have a better week. I would like you all to take notes right now. I'm going to give you five simple biblical principles for having a better week. There's a good place for advice. I could be doing that. I could give you 12 steps toward a happier marriage, and I could give you timeless truths, and there's a place for good advice about having a better marriage if you're married. I could go on and on and on and on. But the, the outlines are countless. And I'm not saying there's not a place for good advice and, Wise counsel. But I think the greatest thing I could possibly ever give you is to say, don't look inward. And don't look to fellow sinners for certainty. Because when those five ways or 12 steps or whatever are failed, because we're all going to fail, you can look outside of yourself. If you're looking to Christ, you can face anything. Not because you're being resolute like him, but because he is resolute in being the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. Certainty here. That'll get you through more than anything else. He's worthy of our praise. He's the one who, as the song says, calms our fears. Let's move to number three, another statement of certainty, a third statement of certainty showcasing his sovereignty. And that is found, found also in verse 18. And they will condemn him to death. They will condemn him to death. So Jesus is walking into sure death. The festivities and the celebration will come to an awful halt. But if he is the Passover lamb, there needs to be a sacrifice. And so at the hands of sinful human beings, to borrow from the book of Acts, this will happen. But make no mistake about it, it will happen. It most definitely will happen. They will condemn Him to death. The just one, the righteous one, who should never be condemned. That's the opposing concept. He will be condemned to death. This has to be because He's a substitute, because you condemn those who are lawbreakers. You justify those who are lawkeepers. He will be condemned as a lawbreaker, not because He is, but because He's doing what He does as a substitute. And if you think I'm reading too much into the passage, just drop your eyes down to what Jesus says in verse 28, one of the greatest texts ever, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, substitute. In place of, he's condemned, but he shouldn't be condemned. He should be justified, but he's condemned because he's acting as a substitute in place of for the many. This will happen, which is another way of saying he came to save his people from their sins. But here it is actually in our text. Jesus came to die so that he would be the substitute and be the atoning sacrifice, the ransom in place of. For many, they will condemn him in verse eighteen, but we know he is acting, and he is condemned as a substitute in the eyes of God. Remember it, it was spoken from heaven. The Father says, "This is my son in whom I am well pleased that 's not a condemning kind of statement. He will be condemned, but not because he 's worthy of condemnation he 's worthy of justification, but he 's acting on behalf of those who would believe in him. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, sometimes we sing. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, it tames them, it gets them in order, it calms them, it resolves them. Why? Because he's certain, because he's sovereign. Even in the bad things, like the bad things that are going to happen to him. It's no wonder that that song opens with Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing My great Redeemer's praise It's because He charms our fears Okay, number four Let's do the next one Number four, fourth statement of certainty Showcasing His sovereignty Verse 19 And deliver Him over But I'm going to actually supply What's intended there And some translations include it Some don't And will deliver Him over And the reason some translations include it there, because the idea is obviously there. It's just a matter of preference how you would like to translate the English. But I'm going to add the word will to match the pattern. That's what the New American Standard does. Uh, And will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So we could talk for ages about wh- why it is that the, the Jews would find him guilty and then give him over to the Romans, and we could talk about the legalities, uh, the legality of things. Um, there's a place for doing that. We're just not going to do that now. Let, let's just notice the heinousness of it for today. Let's notice that they're bad actors. The Jewish leaders uh, have seen Jesus do all the things that he's done. Uh, it hasn't been uh, a mirage it hasn't been somehow in a dream it hasn't been somehow uh, just based upon hearsay they've seen they've heard they've been eyewitnesses jesus time and time again doing all of the things passing the tests if you will again and again that he really truly is the long awaited king the son of man the one who is fit and they have said about him he's the devil so they want him crucified. They want him killed. They want him killed in the most awful sort of way. So they hand him over to the Gentiles to have him crucified. Not for common criminals, but for the worst kinds of criminals. That's what the Jews want. It's heinous. It's awful. It's bad. He will be, and now at the hands of the Gentiles, But what I would like to do is connect some dots here and have you think ahead with me to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Post-resurrection, He's going to commission the disciples to make disciples of whom? All nations. He's not just the Savior of the Jewish people, boy, those bad actors. And they were. But He also is the Savior of the nations, Gentiles too, those bad actors. Both are involved, and I don't think it's reading too much into it to see. Both are guilty because human beings are guilty, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, because Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the one and only Savior. He's the Savior of the nations. The Apostle Paul would say to the Jew first and also to the Greek, He's the one and only Savior. So I don't think it's by accident that we have not only Jesus opposed by the Jews but he's also to be crucified by the Gentiles. Handing over handing over happens in chapter 27 verse 2 where he's delivered over to Pilate. Uh so this is still yet to come. The mocking happens in chapter 27 verse 31 where he is mocked and they take the scarlet robe off of him. The scourging happens in 27 verse 26. Where he is scourged and handed over to be crucified. The crucifixion also happens in chapter 27 where it said time and time and time and time again, he is crucified. But since we're talking about sovereignty and we could put a lot more emphasis on crucifixion, we'll get there. Lord willing. <laughs> Not certain. But I do want to highlight just one, 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 one verse, one statement from Matthew 27, where it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Was Jesus murdered? Yes, he was. He definitely was murdered. The Bible actually says explicitly he was murdered. He He yielded up his spirit, sovereign to the very end. Sovereign to the very end. Ultimately, his life wasn't taken from him in a certain sense. If we have to nuance it and be careful, he gave up his life. Even to the very end. I don't even know how that works. I have most of Isaiah 53 in my notes. Um, if we went through that, all of the restaurants would be closed for lunch. Um, you'd think I've been doing this long enough to know how many notes to include in my notes and not to. Two weeks ago, I thought I was going to be done so fast that I actually included this in that sermon too, but I didn't preach it because we didn't have time. So anyway, just pray for me. I'm not, I'm not certain of much, including how much to put in sermons. Um, maybe your next pastor will do a better job of that than I will. Um, but not certainly. Maybe. Okay. But I do, I do want to reference a couple things from Isaiah 53 that are just jewels when it comes to sovereignty and are wonderful. In Isaiah 53, it says in verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He renders himself as a guilt offering. Not the guy who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. We will do this, it will happen, it will happen, it will happen. And he gives himself as the guilt offering. It's always been to be this way. Also in Isaiah 53, it says in verse 12, I think it is, because he poured out himself to death. So if you start looking for it, it's all over the place. Divine design, certain design, purposed by none other than the triune God. And we see it here with the Son. He poured out Himself to death. And in doing so, when Jesus does what He does, He makes atonement, satisfaction, so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have our sins taken away, our guilt taken away. And it's not maybe. It's certain, because all of these things He's doing are certain. And so it would make sense that we would say, He save certainly and maybe just to flesh that out just a little bit I appreciate the fact that in Matthew 1 it doesn't say he came to make his people savable that doesn't sound very certain because it's not very certain he came to save his people from their sins wow wow I like to sing, he sealed my pardon. Because in fact he did. He didn't make it possible. Certain. Okay, number five. Fifthly and finally, the fifth statement of certainty showcasing his sovereignty. Verse 19 goes on to say, and he will be raised on the third day. He will be raised on the third day. It wasn't contingency plan even and sometimes even as christians we might think in these terms well if everything goes as planned uh, then they're going to to see him for who he is and they're all going to bow down and worship and everything will be wonderful and fine well in one sense i could see how you would think that way but he's come to his own and his own received him not he's coming to fallen human sinners who need atonement not redirection not better advice. So he comes saying everything that's true and they're morally culpable, responsible to do to do all the things that he says. But the reality is, it wasn't a contingency plan. There was going to be resurrection and there was always going to be resurrection. There was always going to be crucifixion. There will be, will be, will be, will be. And now we have and will be raised on the third day. And I say it in those terms when I reflect on He will be raised on the third day because when we look at other texts like Acts chapter 13, this has always been the plan. Acts 13 verse 35 says, Therefore He also says, He says also in another psalm, quoting Psalm 16.10, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. So I realize I'm quoting Acts 13, but Acts 13 is quoting Psalm 16. So way beforehand, the promise when it comes to Jesus as the Redeemer, He will not, certainty, He will not let His Holy One undergo decay. It's in the context in Acts 13. Resurrection is going to happen. Crucifixion is going to happen. Resurrection is going to happen. No contingency. This is how it's always been planned. It's always been purposed this way. Look outside of yourself for certainty, my friends. He will be raised on the third day. I do love the way he he says it in um, Psalm 16.10 or quoting it in Acts chapter 13. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Think about why he would say it that way. He will not let His Holy One, His different, distinct, different than anybody and everybody else in the human race, undergo corruption or decay. Well, He's different, distinct than everyone. It's His Holy One because He is the one who is Jesus Christ the righteous. (laughs) He is the one who the Father said from heaven, He's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So if he's well pleased with him, he's going to be resurrected. He has to be resurrected, as I so often like to say around here, and we'll keep doing it. If the wages of sin is death and he didn't sin, oh no, he not only didn't sin, he did all things right to the point where the Father says, I'm well pleased with him, he can't stay dead. It's absolutely impossible for him to stay dead. He will not let his Holy One undergo decay because, we have to say, he can't. It would be illogical because he's the good one. He is the righteous one. He's the obedient one on behalf of those he would represent. And it goes on to say in Acts 13 and verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what God prophesied, promised, declared long ago in the Psalms came to pass just like he said he would. And we know, we know because we know Romans chapter 4, that he is raised for us. He's raised for our justification. He's raised so that God would declare us righteous even though we're not because Jesus is righteous. I will, or he will, speaking of himself, be raised on the third day. Another way of saying that, to look at it from a different angle, I will be successful in my attempt to save my people from their sins. Most certainly I'll be successful because I will be raised from the dead. Certainly, it's going to happen. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. So no contingency, no possibility, no probability. If you trust in Jesus, you're trusting in the one who was just this certain. And so you're not trusting in One who may or may 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 not be able to rescue you. Take it on faith. Not sure. That's that's contradictory. As Christians, when we say faith, we're talking about trust. Okay? We're trusting in the one who is certain and certainly was raised from the dead. And so our only source of ultimate certainty is trusting in the one who is certain. It's indeed good. It's very good to have a Savior like Jesus. May this bolster you. May it may it cause you to, to, to float above all the, the turmoil and difficulty that you will have in life on one level or another because we live in a fallen world. We live fallen lives. And it will be this way until Christ returns or we see Him in glory. So for certainty... I'm glad God wired us to want certainty. But the only place we're going to find absolute certainty is not in our hearts and not in the hearts of others, not in their oaths, not in their promises, sadly, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the extraordinary... Holy One, who did not undergo decay, who was indeed raised from the dead, victoriously so, for His glory, for His fame, for His exaltation, and for the good of His people. And we're so thankful to have experienced Your grace. May we be men and women and boys and girls who are quick to tell other sinners about good news and the good news of hope and redemption outside of ourselves, in Christ, the certain sovereign One. In Jesus' name, Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.